Greetings. I'm your host, Coleman Lutz, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, where we'll discover how space technology, geospatial intelligence, and much more are changing our world. We're very excited to say that we have a guest today. Her name is Annie Handler. She's currently doing a PhD on international cooperation in space at the Sydney University School of History and Philosophy of Science. I'm not working on her thesis. Annie hosts Space Chunk podcast, where she shares her conversations with people working in niche areas of the astro industry. If you are interested, I, I recommend that you go listen to her podcast titled Space Chunk on SoundCloud. Jumping into 60 seconds in space, Caterpillar is one of the largest construction companies in the world, and they have ambitious plans to mine our moon. SpaceX's Starship will cost around $2 million per mission, as mentioned by Elon Musk. And this will take you anywhere on Earth, or even to the Moon and Mars. 100 passengers are on board. This is a big deal, considering the average NASA space launch cost is $152 million. Also, a new study came out recommending astronaut fitness programs that can help cancer patients. And lastly, there may very well be a black hole in the outer midst of our own solar system. As humans traditionally thought, it is a hypothetical planet 9, which appears to be located about 20 times farther from the sun on average than Neptune. And hey, don't worry, it doesn't appear to have plans to inhale us anytime soon. All links are in the description. Hello, Annie. It's a little early over there in Sydney, so thank you for joining us today. No worries at all. So you've had a very unique early career studying history and philosophy for your undergraduate investment banking, and I believe you studied abroad, learning Mandarin, and health policy and now philosophy on international space policy and space cooperation applied to space debris. That's right, yes. I think it's very millennial, really, isn't it, to jump around from thing to thing. So I was wondering, why space? What uh, inspired you to do this 180-degree shift? Yeah, so I might just describe a bit sort of where I was um, at the time that I decided to go and do a PhD on space. So I guess I would describe things as being sort of fortunate accidents. And I think growing up, um, I went to a, a very fancy school on a scholarship and so my approach to everything has been opportunity does not knock twice and I saw on the TV again Donald Trump come on the screen and part of me sort of suddenly stopped and was like oh my god there's every chance that we'll end up in World War 3 and I'm sitting here literally like moving things around in Excel while Rome burns this doesn't seem like a good use of my time Um, and I thought in my head well Hang on, I studied some stuff at university and in my honours thesis about the social construction of knowledge and fact. Seems to explain this in a way that they're not talking about, and maybe this is relevant. Thinking about it more deeply, I thought, you know what, I really want to go and do a PhD. And um, now the, the space thing was really an accident. I had previously done research on Antarctica, and I was kind of sick of Antarctica. Um, I'd done a year's worth of intensive research on it. Much as I love a penguin, I was a bit over it. 
And so what I wanted to study, though, was another area of cooperative international governance. And Antarctica is one, you've got sort of maybe the deep sea as another and space. And had I thought about it, I may have gone with cyber, but at the time my brain wasn't quite locked in on that sort of thing. Um, and I thought, well, the stuff I did on Antarctica, a lot of it would apply to space. There are differences in the law, of course, and differences in the strategic implications. But since then, I think I've kind of fallen in love more with space itself and all that it represents and all that it can represent for humanities. So I met Annie at Space Generation Congress, SGC 2019, here in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, how did you fancy SGC? I think that it's a very action-packed few days. It was a very good experience in the power of consensus, the power of true consensus between people from diverse backgrounds and diverse opinions, and truly diverse. Yeah, how about you? Yeah, I, uh, I had a wonderful time, and I think you bring up several great points. Um, and, and for those of you who aren't familiar, SGC is an annual event where around 200 young professionals or delegates convene each year to discuss leading topics in space technology and exploration. And um, it's also held in conjunction with the International Astronautical Congress, IAC. And IAC is one of the largest conferences where space leaders gather to introduce research discoveries and future missions. Um, yeah, so one of the things I find really interesting about IAC's history is that it was one of the only conferences where scientists from the Soviet Union and USA actually met to talk about space topics all through the Cold War. So even when tensions were extremely high elsewhere in the world, IAC was a platform for peaceful international scientific cooperation and collaboration. And I think that's a very powerful history. It's um, truly incredible to see the true significance that IAC has had in humanity's uh, capability to develop space over this past century. You know, as we find ourselves in various international tensions at the moment, and I think looking potentially looking forward over the next few years and the role that space plays in those tensions. I think that IAC can be a very important platform for discussion and a safe space for people to air their thoughts. Absolutely. And my next question is, what did you think about the theme this year, using the power of the past for the promise of the future? I think it was a very appropriate theme for the venue. So it was in Washington, D.C. It was the 50th anniversary year of the Apollo 11 landings. I think in some ways, the, to me, though, I interpreted it a little differently. For me, the power of the past is the power of international cooperation and the power of the fact that even when we had such tensions, we didn't go to nuclear war and space remained a mostly peaceful commons. That to me is the power of the past. And then the promise of the future is, well, can we continue that? Can that remain? And, and I think 
I was a little bit worried about um, some of the content and tone of the uh, Vice President Pence's remarks at the opening ceremony. I I'm sure I I'd be really interested to hear what you think as an American. I believe uh, that it was somewhat too Americanized. Yeah. What did you think of the power of the past and the promise of the future? I think there's a certain harmony between the two, um, the past and the future, as in uh, we'll spend our entire lives seeking this kind of balance of knowledge between what has happened in history and trying to correlate it to our future. Hmm. Very profound. So one of my uh, takeaways were that nearly every uh, large space company is, is going to the moon. <laughs> yeah, what do you think about that? I was thinking about this watching Ad Astra about um, mankind has never been at such a lack of vital resources. Water, oxygen, food for, for our entire existence. I was thinking, you know, historically, we justified going to the moon and doing space exploration because it was for science and that was considered to be a good reason to go. Of course, the real reason we went to the moon was um, because there was a race. It was a political, a political act. And I think it's possible that, again, all of this talk about going to the moon is, again, political. But the reason we go now isn't science because that's old school and everyone's like, oh, who really cares? So, in fact, the reason we're now going is because we're trying to justify it by saying, oh, but there's lots of money to be made on the moon and therefore it's worth going. And that tension to me is really interesting. This is just this incredibly old idea that somehow has gotten legs and, and in a bizarre form of social construction has taken on a bit of a life of its own and a reality of its own. But I will be curious to see how many of these companies actually make it to the moon, because it is hard to do. And then there's uh, Jeff Bezos um, at, at Blue Origin forming what I believe to be one of the most powerful uh, partnerships in space and on the moon. He mentioned that um, vertical landing is easier to scale with larger rockets. Um, and in comparison to landing a rocket on our moon, he said in his, his somewhat deep and, and pacifying voice that um, it, it's easy to balance a broomstick, but not a pencil. <laughs> I'm gonna throw out this um, kind of unfound theory uh, to the internet of things and, and say that uh, large organizations working in space are more than twice as likely to work with another organization they've already worked with. And you say it's a theory, as in this is just something that you think is likely? Absolutely. I, I, I think um, there's a certain ease of collaboration and um, interoperability and understanding how um, all these systems harmonize together. And But then on a human level as well, I think, you know, often we think about these things in terms of there's a scientific goal here and do the goals align. But actually, more often, it's like Joe works here and Bernice works here. And Joe and Bernice went to Space Generation Congress together five years ago. And I, that really struck home for me because space is one of those areas that's still small. 
Exactly. I completely agree. And we'll be back right after this break. And we learned so much about space health and medicine as well. And one of my key takeaways um, was how microgravity influences our blood flow. Um, how the direction of blood generally flows more towards the chest and head rather than towards our limbs. I think to those of you listening out there, keep this in mind as we learn about every internal biological process over our lifetimes. When a human is experiencing microgravity, more blood stays in um, certain portions of the leg and less is returned to our heart. And if you're interested in getting more involved in space health and medicine, I encourage you to join the Slack group Space Medicine in the podcast description. Get on it. Sounds good. And what was one of your takeaways? So I was quite fascinated by the amount of research that's being done. And I guess when I think about it, it makes sense. You've got astronauts sitting on the ISS. Why wouldn't you be doing experiments on them? Um, so how many astronauts do you think we met? Oh, that's a really great question. I think personally, I probably met somewhere around, oh, I don't know, maybe three. How about you? Around four something like that, three, three, four. Each one of them had a unique perspective. There's this, there's this kind of foreign, out of this world experience that captivates their consciousness. And also they're such down to earth people. Yeah, I mean, they're real people. One of the things that I find uncomfortable about the astronaut thing is the way that people are kind of obsessed with astronauts and they're obsessed with the concept of an astronaut not with the individual person necessarily, most of the time. And I spoke about this with one of the astronauts who visited us at SGC, but he made the point to me that people don't get excited about him. They're not there to be excited about what he's done, even if they respect it. They're there to be excited about the concept of an astronaut and the concept of space, and that's what he represents. So in that moment, he's almost like a technology or a, an object rather than a person. I thought that was quite fascinating. What, what were your takeaways from meeting astronauts? One of the perspectives that resonates with me was when the female astronaut at Space Night mentioned, hey, pretty soon we'll all have a friend or colleague who's an astronaut or who knows one. Astronauts use virtual reality on the ground to find things easier on the ISS, and that's become standard training for all crew members. We have just barely begun to explore the significance that virtual reality can have on deep space psychological stimulation. That sounds really, really worthwhile. And they mentioned that underwater training is some of the most helpful um, processes they've had during training. There was this panel of NASA experts and Bill Nye discussing about NASA's Clipper satellite mission, which is set to launch in 2025 to explore Jupiter's moon Europa. How cool is it that we both had the chance to meet Bill Nye at, over dinner at the Air and Space Museum? Yeah, that was cool. It was a really great dinner. Um, this was the Space Generation 
closing dinner. And what I loved the most was that they opened the Air and Space Museum for us to walk around uh, at night and like check out the exhibits. Yeah, it, it was one of the most memorable nights I've had um, in a while, I'd say. So NASA is sending this three-ton spacecraft on a 390 million mile journey to, to conduct science for three years on Europa. And this machine is equipped with an ultraviolet and infrared sensor to image the surface of the moon in 50 centimeter resolution in search of volcanic and hydrothermal activity. Um, one of the NASA experts mentioned that the largest challenge is um, the radiation exposure from Jupiter. These um, radiation-charged particles play a huge toll on the solar cells of the satellite. Hmm. I'm really interested in Europa because when I was studying Antarctica, um, I had the opportunity to visit JPL and talk to the Europa Lander team. Because for a little while, there was a plan to test the Europa Lander at Lake Vostok in Antarctica. And that plan fell through. So uh, ever since then, I've kind of been following the Europa journey. And I suppose this mission won't have a lander on it, but I'm very excited for if and when that is done. The, the main thing, the main difficulty they have with the lander is not the technology to drill through the ice or um, float around looking at things. That's actually quite you know, relatively simple, but the big problem is making it clean enough that you don't contaminate the thing that you're trying to explore. Uh, it's very hard to make anything that comes from Earth clean in the sense that it doesn't contain any biological kind of um, actants at all. So trying to <laughs> trying to clean the lander so that they can safely send it to Europa, drill in to the ice and float around in the water underneath, that is a huge undertaking and important to do right. Interesting. So. Below the 20 kilometers surface of ice, uh, there's strong evidence that there's an ancient ocean that's been simmering for 4 billion years. And this ocean is believed to be around 80 kilometers deep, containing twice as much water as all of Earth's oceans combined. Um, I, I've done a little bit of research, and did you know that 90% of all volcanic activity occurs in oceans? and that approximately 70% of life on Earth primarily takes place in what we call the deep sea. I did not know that. Yeah, that is. Yeah, so I guess with Europa, the hope is that we'll find life there in the oceans. But in order to find life, you have to ensure that the life you find is not something you accidentally took there from Earth. And it's a challenge to do even in Antarctica. So even more of a challenge to do um, at the end of a long space mission. But it was it was funny when Bill and I uh, started talking about these these Europeanians. And very recently, NASA scientists observed that Europa infrequently emits a vast amount of water vapor. As much as 5,200 pounds of water vapor can be released per second. And what is even more interesting to me is how they made this observation. When water vapor interacts with solar radiation, it emits, it emits distinct wavelengths of infrared light that can be detected with telescopes. So my challenge for you listening 
is to take this mechanism of observing frequency fluctuation outside of human visibility after two substances interact together and apply it elsewhere towards a passion. I believe Jupiter's moon harbors all the necessary elements for life and that uh, deep below the ice in Europa's oceans is where we'll find some incredible life forms in our solar system. Yeah, it'll be very exciting to see. I think this is something that will that we will do within my lifetime and your lifetime. Something to ease the sting of the middle-aged crisis. So I was uh, sitting in this technical session uh, where Dr. Jeffrey Landis, uh, who is a renowned scientist at NASA, discussed about their proposed research and mission to Triton, which is the largest moon of Neptune, with one-seventh the gravity of Earth. The moon is actually larger than Pluto, and um, it's the only moon that travels in the opposite direction of uh, its planet's rotation. And it is also believed that there's another subsurface ocean there. What was really incredible was Dr. Landis uh, from NASA was discussing launching this 900 kilogram robotic hopper that would leapfrog 32 kilometers every six kilometers from the South Pole to the equator. It was amazing. I'm really fascinated to see this happen. And this hopper would fuel itself from excavating the nitrogen ice from the surface to help us better understand the volcanic plume environment in this alien world. Thank you so much, Annie. I'm very glad that you could join us today on our podcast. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and, and reconnect. It was great to meet you at the Space Generation Congress. If people wanted to find out more or just hear more Australian accent, then uh, they can check out, uh, so I do a podcast called Space Junk Podcast, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Annie Handma. So just check the spelling in the description of this episode and you'll be able to find me. Hey, maybe we'll cross paths next year at the IAC in Dubai. I certainly hope so. I really do. Hey, if you found today's episode helpful, it would mean so much to me if you could share with a friend or leave a review. Catch you next time.